Father, what a, what a joyous praise to offer to each other today. To remind one another that it, it is done, it is finished. God, sometimes we take that for granted. We lose sight of it. And so I pray that in this moment, this morning, God, we could come and be reminded with the way in which we lift our voices, with the way in which we turn to these scriptures, the way in which we long for your presence and your spirit, to give praise for the cross, to be able to declare no more debt do we owe, for it is done, it is finished. May the freedom of that truth pierce our hearts this morning and change us. And we would respond with joyful praise, offering our lives to you in such a way that we bring you the glory you so richly deserve. We love you, Father. Be with us now as we turn to your word. Fill this place with your presence and your spirit. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you all. You can be seated. So, uh, my ninth grade English teacher uh, was a, a wonderful lady by the name of Mrs. Garcia. Okay, I had English in second period, uh, right after first period athletics. And I had signed up for basketball off-season. And so when I started my high school career, first period every day, I was playing basketball right before I would go to second period English. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not, uh, but basketball requires a great deal of running, okay? You need not be slow. You need not tire easily, which is unfortunate because those were two of my greatest strengths. And so I worked through basketball offseason, and no matter how hard I tried, uh, I could not cool my core temperature down at all. So I would show up to second period English just absolutely drenched in sweat. And I would try uh, everything that you would expect a ninth grade boy to try. Uh, to, to mask that as I went into English, I would still put an insane amount of hair gel in my hair, and there was like this battle on top of my head, which was going to be stronger, the sweat or the gel. And I mixed those two uh, together very nicely, and then I would put four to five hundred sprays of cologne uh, on to try to cover up whatever odor would have come from working out for a whole period before going to English, and I would still be drenched in sweat. So I would walk into class uh, with this wonderful mixture of cologne and gel and sweat. And let me just tell you, the ladies were definitely noticing me, all right? Uh, maybe not the way I wanted them to, but they were noticing me. And so that's how I would come to English every single day. And it was there in English that I really kind of got introduced to the new standards of academics in high school. And because it was English and because it was Mrs. Garcia, one of the first things that stood out to me was the reading list. Okay, she, at the very beginning of the semester, she hands out this reading list. It's a pretty substantial reading list. And I looked at all these books that she wanted us to read throughout the course of the semester. And my first thought was, not going to happen. Right? Like I just had zero interest, zero motivation to even begin to try to read all of those books. Uh, which is a little bit ironic because I grew up with a reading teacher. Uh, reading was a big part of our childhood. I loved reading in childhood, loved reading as an adult. But as a ninth grade boy, I loved not reading. And so I looked at that reading list and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do this. And so I immediately started thinking through shortcuts 
ways that I could circumvent this process. And so uh, I looked at the reading list, and the first book that we had to read that year was a book called The Horse Whisperer. If any of you remember it, it actually became a pretty well-known book, became a movie, uh, two years too late for this story, unfortunately, uh, but not as if my mom would have let me watch a movie of a book that I was supposed to be reading anyway. Uh, but it was a pretty well-known book, and uh, I started to try to come up with some different strategies to make this go a little bit quicker, and I decided to listen to the book on tape. Uh, that phrase in and of itself feels like it belongs in a museum, right? It really dates me, book on tape. But I grew up in an era that predates smartphones. Uh, it, it predates the whole Audible app and the AirPods where you can just listen to nonstop entertainment. And so I got the book on tape, and because we didn't walk around with our Walkmans, 24-7, it really meant that if you were going to listen to the book on tape, you had to sit in front of a cassette player and just listen. There was no one and a half times speed, two times speed. And so I, I made this attempt. I put this cassette in, in the uh, cassette player in my room, pushed play, and started listening. And what I quickly discovered was that it was more boring than reading it myself. Uh, having somebody just read it to me was not very compelling. And so I maybe got Three to four pages in, I don't know, it wasn't far, and I just was like, I'm done. And so I just quit reading. And, and I thought I was going to be able to get away with it. And for the first few weeks, I, I kind of thought it was going to work out. There wasn't any major assignment. There wasn't a major project. Uh, there was some discussion at the beginning of each class, and I could just kind of uh, fake my way through that, nod my head, yeah, great observation, you know, and just try to pretend like nobody needed to call on me. We'd often break up into small groups to discuss. And so I thought I was going to get away with it. When all of a sudden we get kind of three or four weeks in when everybody's supposed to have been expected to have read the book and we're having a, a final discussion on it in class. And I'm thinking, okay, I've, I've made it. And so I, I show up to class that day uh, and it's a, it's a whole, whole class discussion. And Ms. Garcia looks at me, she says, Jeremiah. And I look up with sweat running down my face, not because I was nervous, but because of basketball. And, and she asks me the question. She says, Jeremiah, how did you feel when the horse died? Now, if any of you have read this book, you already know what Mrs. Garcia is doing to me in this moment, okay? Uh, and, and you know that that was a pretty cruel trick of what she was doing. I, however, had no clue what she was doing. And so somewhere in the recesses of my brain, I remember just of those first few pages that I think <clears throat> there was some form of a car wreck, I think, that took place. I, to this day, I don't know. I still haven't read the book. Um, and, and something happened that maybe involved a horse trailer. And so I assumed that there at the beginning, a horse died, and the death of that horse influenced the trajectory of the whole story of the book. And so going with that assumption, I very confidently looked at Mrs. Garcia with the false confidence and said, well, I was really sad when that happened. And Sarah Lackey, one of my good friends who was in the class with me, and she was sitting catty corner from me, she was just one row up and one row over, kind of diagonally. She looks back over her left shoulder and she whispers at me, she goes, Jeremiah, the horse doesn't die. And it was just a hush over the crowd. Like you could still hear Sarah's whisper. And in that moment, like I knew I was had and I was mortified. And I wanted like the trap door. I wanted to disappear, but there was no escape. And I don't really know exactly how it unfolded next. I don't remember if it was in front of the whole class. I don't remember if she pulled me out in the hall and talked to me. I must have blacked out, I guess, from being so embarrassed. But I do remember one specific question that she asked me after all this transpired. She says, Jeremiah, what are you expecting me to do? And, and it was a great question, right? Because there I was confronted with my wrongdoing, 
confronted with my mistake, and, and it, was, it was clear. She knew, I knew, and a lot of times when we have these moments and we have that sort of confrontation, it's there that you begin to confess. It's there that you own up to it. You admit it. You apologize. You seek repentance, reconciliation, whatever it is. But you know what I did? I doubled down. That's right. I doubled down. I, I didn't come out and say that I had read it. I didn't come out and say that I didn't read it. I just kept defending my answer. No, I thought there was something at the beginning of the book. And the more I tried to defend and cover it up, the worse and more embarrassing it really became. Now, I don't really remember what she did from there um, specifically. Okay, here's what I can tell you. I, I know there wasn't any major uh, consequence. I, I know there wasn't a phone call to the parents. I know there wasn't like a major failing grade or anything along those lines. Uh, all I remember after thinking through that process was a subtle, unspoken presence of grace. It was almost like she knew that that confrontation and the realization of my wrongdoing would be the teacher that I needed. It would, it would correct my behavior. She, she gave me some measure of grace. And the truth be told, it, it worked. Because I was so uh, disappointed in myself and in that moment that I really changed the whole course of the rest of that semester and really the rest of the year in her class. Um, I, I got my act together. I did get an A, I should have you know. And, uh, and I changed my approach to the reading list. To this day, my favorite book that I read in high school was The Tale of Two Cities. And, and I remember sitting in my living room with like four different highlighters, like highlighting all the different literary techniques of A Tale of Two Cities and being so engrossed with it and just marveling at it. And that was because of Mrs. Garcia and reading it in her class. So it was like I was a new student. It's like I totally changed my approach and, and my whole mindset into her class because of that confrontation and because of the grace that she demonstrated to me. Now, I share this story uh, because I think it's indicative of how we often respond when we're confronted with our own mistakes, when, our, with, when we're confronted with our own wrongdoing, right? Here I was in a class, I knew what the teacher wanted from me. And I, I knew what she wanted, and I willfully chose the opposite direction. And, and how often is that like our relationship with God, right? Where we know what he wants from us, and we willfully go the other way. And then all of a sudden, it catches up to you. And you have that moment where you're confronted with your sin, you're confronted with your mistake, your failure, your wrongdoing, whatever it is. How do you respond in those moments? That's the question that we're gonna to answer today. And, and Psalm 51 serves as a great template of how when we're confronted with our own wrongdoing, with our own mistakes, how we can take those moments and orient them towards prayer, towards worship in a way that we experience God's grace and the renewal and restoration that only he can provide. And when we experience that, like when, when you are confronted with the depths of your sin, with your own wrongdoing, and you experience the grace that the Father offers, I will assure you that is one of the greatest measures of discovering that he truly is the safest relationship in our lives, which is the title we've given for this series, right? Finding Your Safest Relationship. And the whole premise has been, let's walk through these different psalms. Let's look at the different situations, circumstances, all the different emotions that the psalmist brings before God and, and in that see that there's nothing we can't bring to God, right? No situation, no emotion, whatever you feel, Whatever you're going through, you can bring it to him and discover the safety that he provides. And so we introduced this series by first looking at Psalm 103. 
and, and really just kind of kicked it off by that encouragement to forget not his goodness, as the psalmist says there at the beginning of Psalm 103, and to take time to reflect upon the goodness that God has shown us. And then we looked at all these different genres so far. We started with a, a look at an entrance liturgy, Psalm 24, uh, and we asked ourselves the question, how do we ready ourselves for this relationship? Uh, we turned to Psalm 2, which was a royal psalm focused on kings and the convocation of King David, and, and asked ourselves, okay, how does this help develop a theological framework for world events? And then last week, we introduced the most common genre of psalm, which is a lament. And, and we did that through a prayer service. And, and part of the reason we did that was not just to introduce the season of Lent uh, and, and this concept of lament, but when you look at the psalms, they're really kind of two broad categories of laments. You have communal laments and then personal laments. And so communal laments is kind of what we tried to practice together uh, last week by walking through Psalm 13. Today, we're going to focus in a little bit more on these individual laments. And even on a personal individual level, you can see subheadings, right? The idea of lament is to be sorrowful, to, to grieve, to mourn. And so how does this work out on a more personal, intimate level? Well, some of the types of psalms that you see under this subheading of personal laments would be um, psalms of affliction, Right? So the psalmist is falsely accused, and the prayers are for vindication and deliverance. Or psalms of illness. Right? The, the psalmist is going through some sort of sickness, some sort of disease, and needs healing. The one we're going to look at today is a penitential psalm. That's that word penance. Right? It's this idea of punishment, this idea of what happens when you're confronted with your own wrongdoing. And, and how do we learn in that lament, that sorrow, when we actually have to confront our sin? And so uh, to do this today, Psalm 51 is going to be, uh, I think, a great guide. Now, we're not going to be able to read all of Psalm 51. We don't have time for that, but I would encourage you to take time throughout the course of this week to do so. Go back and read it in its entirety. It's really, really powerful. It's really great. Uh, we're just going to look at a few verses today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you go ahead and turn there. And I don't know if every Bible is going to have this, um, but there's a subheading that I'm going to call your attention to right there at the underneath Psalm 51 that really uh, begins before verse 1 to set the stage for us. Uh, we're just going to be looking at two verses a little bit later in the message, but I want to set the stage for what led to the writing of this psalm. It says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Okay? This is a well-known story, probably. It depends, I guess, on your familiarity with the scriptures and uh, the, the time in which you may have heard this. But uh, this is referring back to a story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And it really gives us some great context to understand what the psalmist is writing. And so before we look at a few verses in Psalm 51, I want to revisit the story. I'm not going to read all of chapter 11 and all of chapter 12 today. I'm just going to paraphrase it. I'm going to summarize it so that I can emphasize and accentuate a couple of critical points of what takes place in David's life that then informs our understanding of sin, our own propensity towards wrongdoing, so that we can then learn how to reorient that towards worship and prayer. And so if you were to go back and look at that story in 2 Samuel 11, here's how it begins. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. David remained in Jerusalem. So in the spring, when it was time for kings to go out to war, David stays at home. So one of the first things you see about the story that puts David on this trajectory towards wrongdoing is David isn't where he's supposed to be. And isn't that how sin often gets us? 
right? We're, we're in a situation, in a place, in a moment, in a frame of mind that we shouldn't be, right? We're, we're, we're doing something we shouldn't. He's abdicated responsibility, right? He's abusing his authority, and it is positioning him, positioning him in an environment that is now going to ignite the embers of impulse and desire and set that sin ablaze. So often, sin finds us because we are somewhere we shouldn't be. Let me ask you this morning, how true is that of you in your life right now? Right? Beyond Sunday morning, you think about your day, your week, your time. How often do you find yourself in moments, in situations, in places where you shouldn't be? It's often how it starts. Right? And so David was at home in Jerusalem, and then it tells us that he gets out on his rooftop and he starts to walk around, and he looks over and he sees a woman bathe. Right? And says she's very beautiful. And so right there again, what we see at the, at the onset of this story is that David's eyes are about to lead him into sin. Now, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that you even look at a woman lustfully, you commit adultery with her in your heart. And I can't help but wonder if part of what Jesus is referring to in that teaching is this story, right? Calling to mind the way that this unfolded. But, but David, just in walking around, being in a situation he shouldn't have been, he lets his eyes give rise to sin. And that's a reminder to you and me that our eyes often lead us down a path towards wrongdoing, right? Your, your eyes doesn't have to just be directed towards the question of lust, right? It, it could be that your eyes are focused on things that are gonna ignite envy or greed, Right? Or maybe you're fixated on certain people that you're, you've got resentment towards and it's going to lead towards slander or gossip. Let me ask you a question this morning. Where are your eyes focused in your life right now? What's got your attention? Right? Our eyes often lead us astray. So David looks at this woman, sees that she's beautiful, and so he inquires about her. Right? He, he asks about her and word gets back. Uh, this is the wife of one of your soldiers who's out fighting for you, right? She belongs to Uriah the Hittite. And so he knows, like word is there. And so let's be very clear, right? David knows that what he wants to do and what's about to transpire is wrong. This is willful disobedience. Right? Sometimes when we sin, sometimes when we find ourselves in wrongdoing, it can be uh, one of those things that happens as a lack of awareness. We didn't realize what God's word had maybe wanted from us in those moments, in those situations. Sometimes it, it kind of just happens upon us. But this is David conspiring, David thinking, David inquiring, David hearing, David knowing, and then choosing willful disobedience. Right? He knows what his God wants from him. There's a fork in the road. God wants him to go right and he decides to go left. So I want to ask you again this morning, how much of your life is marked with willful disobedience? How, how many times have you recently, regularly found yourself at a similar fork in the road thinking, I know what God wants for me in this moment. I know he wants me to go right, but I'm going left. And that's what David chooses to do. So he has Bathsheba brought to him. He sleeps with her, and then he sends her away. Treats her like a possession, right? It's, it's a tremendous exploitation of power. 
right? Sends her away. And, and now with his sinful impulses being satisfied, I'm sure there is a part of him that thinks, okay, I did it. I'm, I'm done. I've gotten away with it. But sin has a way of finding us, doesn't it? And so shortly thereafter, word gets back to David that she's pregnant. And so here he is now at this realization with this word coming to him, like he's, he's confronted by his own wrongdoing. There's no hiding what you did. There's no escaping what you did. Now we know. She knows. He knows that, that there is no getting out of this. And so this could be the moment where he chooses to confess, where he chooses to repent, where he chooses a better path. But what does David do? He doubles down. Right, let, me, let me keep it a secret. Let me, let me keep going. Let me keep hiding this. And so he concocts a plan, right? He's got to figure out a way so that it seems as if this is Uriah's child. So he has Uriah brought in from battle, brings him in, and he says, take a break, go home, eat, drink, sleep with your wife. And so Uriah listens, but then he you know what he does. He goes and he sleeps at the gate on the mat with his master's servants. So the next day, David's like, mind blown. Why didn't you go home? He brings Uriah back. He's like, why did you sleep out there? Why wouldn't you go home? And Uriah offers this answer. He goes, how can I go home? and enjoy food and a comfortable bed and, and sleeping with my wife and all those things when all my friends, all my peers are out there fighting, offers this answer of integrity that should have been the answer in the conduct of David. And so again, David confronted with his own wrongdoing, with his own poor decisions, with this integrity of Uriah. And what does he do? He doubles down again, tries another time. This time he tries to get Uriah drunk, thinking that after Uriah has had too much to drink, he will lose. His, his will and his control, give in to his inhibitions and go home and sleep with his wife. But once again, Uriah sleeps on the mat with his master's servants. And so after his second attempt, David gives in. He says, that's it, I'm gonna put an end to this. And so he writes out a plan for Uriah's death. He writes a letter to Joab saying, uh, put Uriah at the fiercest part of the battle and then fall back so that he's struck down. Writes this in a letter, seals it, hands it to Uriah makes Uriah carry his own death warrant to Joab, right? And so Joab gets it, sees it, follows through. It actually kind of modifies the plan even a little bit better to help the cover-up and sends word back to David and, and essentially says, all right, Uriah the Hittite has died. And so David now feels like he is, he is done. He, is, he has finished his plan. Word gets to Uriah's wife. That's how it's described in the scriptures. I love that. Not to Bathsheba, word gets to Uriah's wife. And it tells us that she mourns him. Which gives us another insight to the relationship they had and the sort of pain that David was inflicting upon her and his family. But after the time of mourning is done, he takes Bathsheba and he makes her his wife. And so there you are, you think it's all done. And this final verse at the end of chapter 11 says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It's a really chilling verse because through the whole story, there's really no mention of God. No moment where God is intervening, no moment where God is trying to warn David or, or trying to make things not happen, right? But then you get this just simple phrase that God was there the entire time, right? A lot of times when we give in to sin, and we, we convince ourselves that we can get away with it and we try to rationalize it and we try to cover it up and we try to hide it. Man, we, we do everything we can to pretend. We do everything we can to fool everyone around us, right? And, and we put on a great show 
And Lord knows church history is filled with people that have done this. And we even got recent news just this past week again of times that people can be one way out in front with everyone else, but inside, behind closed doors, man, completely different. Thinking that we can, we can put on this charade and what that simple verse tells us, no matter how hard you try, no matter how many people you think you have fooled, you have never fooled God. Scripture tells us God cannot be mocked. You reap what you sow. And right there at the end of chapter 11, God was displeased. Right? And so we see this transition then where, where God sends Nathan to David. And, and I think that's another great reminder for us that a lot of times when we are caught in sin, when we, are, when we are wayward, God will send people into our life. And so maybe a helpful question for us to continually check back in on is, who is God sending into my life? Right? A lot of times we want to be the person sent. We're like, well, I'll go tell these people how they're sinning. But maybe we need to flip it a little bit and be like, well, who, who is he sending to me? Who do I need to be listening to? And so God sends Nathan to David, and, and Nathan does this masterfully. Right? He tells David the story. He says, David, there's two men. There's a rich man who has so many sheep, so many cattle, so many possessions. And then there's this poor man that has hardly anything. He's got one little lamb that he, he cares for. He treats as if it's his own daughter. He, he takes care of it day in and day out. And a traveler comes into the village, and the rich man, in hosting this traveler, decides to actually go and take the lamb from the poor man and sacrifice it and present it as a meal to this traveler. And as soon as Nathan tells this story, David erupts in anger and says, As surely as the Lord lives, this man shall die. And as soon as he declares that, David has offered his own sentencing. Right? That if that's what that man deserves, then how much more so is that not what David deserves for his own wrongdoing? So in judging others, he gives this righteous indignation. This is what this man deserves. Failing to even recognize that that same logic, that same conviction should be applied to his own life. Now, probably because uh, th there wasn't going to be an actual basis for stoning or an execution for that sort of an offense, David modifies or at least expounds upon what he believes should happen, that this, this rich man needs to pay four times over for what he has done, for not showing pity to the poor man. All right? And so he declares this this declaration, he gives this verdict, you know, this man should absolutely die, he should pay four times over for failing to have pity. And the minute that he offers this sort of sentencing, Nathan speaks up and says, you're the man. It's you. And he gives such a powerful, powerful rebuke towards David. Listen to what he says. He says, the Lord God, the God of Israel says, I gave you your master's house, your master's wives and all of Israel and Judah, and I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You killed Uriah with the sword and took his wife to be your own. Therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Now, before we continue, if you're familiar with David's story, right, the story of, of Abnon and Tamar and Absalom, right, the calamity that comes upon David's house is significant, tragic, it's awful, 
right? And it's like the next few pages. And so what we see in the story of David is that, um, yes, we can absolutely ask for forgiveness and find forgiveness, but you and I have to recognize there is a consequence for sin, period, right? Like, now, aren't we glad that what the scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death, there's your consequence, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? There's your forgiveness, there's your grace. So we get to be set free from the eternal consequence of sin, but let's not forget that there is still earthly consequences. If you commit adultery, there's a consequence. If you commit murder, there's a consequence, right? If you find yourself constantly giving in to addiction, to slander, to gossip, to resentment, there are consequences for sin, right? A lot of times we don't take sin seriously and we presume upon God's grace and mercy and we think, well, I'll just ask for forgiveness and then we just find ourselves getting comfortable living in the mud, right? There's a consequence for it. And if we don't recognize that, then perhaps we're missing the level to which it's bringing calamity upon our own lives and our own homes. We've got to take sin seriously. God does, so should we. Right? And so here he is, confronted now with this sin. There is no escape. There is no more hiding. There is no more rationalizing. And in 2 Samuel 12, 13, you have a very simple depiction of what David's response is. I have sinned against the Lord. No more running, no more hiding. I've sinned. And it's there in that confrontation with his own wrongdoing that leads to the writing of Psalm 51. And I want us to feel the weight of it. Like I want us to feel the depth to which David had to wrestle with this and recognize this is part of our relationship with God. This, This is part of the dynamic. And so there's a couple of verses that I want to highlight for us from Psalm 51 today that I think give us a template. How do you respond when confronted with wrongdoing? How do we navigate those moments? And so Psalm 51 begins, you heard Martha read it to the children earlier, where David evokes the character of God, right? His mercy, his unfailing love, his compassion. He knows who God is. And then listen to his confession in verse three. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. So at this moment, David knows that he has sinned. He's aware of his transgressions. Are you? Like, when's the last time you took the time to search your heart, search your soul, and identify by name your transgressions, your sins? Right? Now, if, if you're sitting there today going, well, I don't really sin very much, well, then that's your sin, okay? Like, I'll help you. Because the good news is, is none of us get to walk in here and pretend like we're perfect. None of us. So, like, we, we all have it. When's the last time we searched it out and identified it and named it and said, I know my transgressions and acknowledge it? Right? We have to be able to um, confront it in that way, take ownership of it. And acknowledge our sin and confess it before the Lord. David knows what he has done. We gotta quit hiding. We gotta quit pretending. 
We gotta quit putting on this mask. We gotta quit trying to come up to church and just pretend like everything's fine. Like, let's acknowledge that we are broken, sinful people who make mistakes. Right? That's the first thing he does. He says, I know my transgressions. And the second part of this verse is he says, my sin is ever before me. Now, here's what I think is really remarkable about this next part that I think is really important for us today. Okay? Um, I am so glad that Psalm 51 doesn't stop after verse three. Because a lot of times that's how we live our lives. Right, what happens is we know God's character, we know he's merciful, we know he's full of unfailing love and compassion, and then we go through life and we make enough mistakes, we have enough wrongdoings, and then we are so cognizant, conscious of our sin that it feels like our sin is ever before us and that's all we see. And the next thing you know the ditch on the other side of the road, right? If we're just gonna try to hide it and pretend it and act like it's not there on this side, the ditch on the other side of the road is that now we're so acutely aware of it, so overwhelmed by it that it's ever before us and it creates this insurmountable wall between us and God. And if we're not careful, when we're in this ditch, what happens is we let sin define who we are. We let our mistakes and our wrongdoing shape our identity. Right? And we, we just think it's ever before us. And when we're stuck in this ditch, the question that we can't ever seem to reconcile is, can God actually forgive me? I'll never forget, um, more than 10 years ago, I had a neighbor who um, was just riddled with guilt and shame from her mistakes and her, her choices and her past decisions and all these different things. And she came up to me one time and we were sitting there talking about it, sitting out there on the curb. And as she was so overwhelmed with it, it was like her sin was ever before her. And the question she asked me, she looked at me with tears in her eyes and she said, can he really forgive me? And she was so ensnared by it. And I'm sure there are some of you in here today that feel the exact same way. Right, you know who God is. You know what they say about him. But for you, oh, no, my sin's ever before me. And you find yourself carrying the weight of that same question, can he actually forgive me? And I want to implore you this morning the same way I did with her that day. The answer to that question is absolutely yes. He forgives. And the question you have to ask in response is, well, then how? And that's what leads us to verse 7. Right, David continues with his, his kind of discussion on all the things that he sees with this sin, that he's been sinful since birth, and having acknowledged that, confessed it, he now turns and shows us, what do we do? What do we do when we're confronted with our own wrongdoing? He says to God, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. So the word hyssop here is referring to a plant. Uh, now, this is a really interesting reference because uh, when you go back to the Exodus story in the Passover and in the moment where uh, God is going to take the firstborn child for every firstborn out of Egypt, that the way that Israel is protected is to take the blood of a lamb and sprinkle it over the door frames of the houses. And so Moses is offering these instructions to Israel, put the blood of the lamb over the houses. And in those instructions, Exodus 12, 22, he says, take the hyssop plant, dip it in the basin with the blood, 
and spread it over the door frames of the houses. So the hyssop plant becomes the symbol of God's redemption, God's grace, his passing over, his, his saving. It points us to the blood of the Lamb. That's where David is turning for his hope. That's where David is turning for his forgiveness. The God that washes and cleanses with hyssop with the blood of the Lamb. And that verse continues that that cleansing leads us to being washed as white as snow. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Our God is a God who cleanses us from our sins, church. And you and I need to not run from our wrongdoing, but embrace it because it leads us to the cross. It leads us to the blood of Jesus. See, you and I have the benefit that David didn't at this moment, and even the prophet Isaiah didn't, to see that this promise of cleansing is assured for us through Christ. Once and for all. And that is such a remarkable truth for you and I to hear and to understand. Hebrews chapter 9 says it this way. He, he mean Jesus, did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of a heifer, sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then... Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? 1 John 1.7 says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Amen? All sin, church. Let me say it this way. The blood of Jesus speaks a stronger word. And that's where we rest. That's where we run when we're confronted with our own wrongdoing. We don't have to hide and we don't have to let it shackle us. We turn to the blood of Christ and understand that it speaks a greater word. And I want it spoken over you all this morning. I want you to be reminded of what he has done for you. And so here's how we're going to close. I'm going to ask that you just bow your head and close your eyes. Here in a minute, I'm going to pray another few verses from Psalm 51 over you. Prayers of of restoration that David offers. But before I do, I want you just to close your eyes and I just want you to search your heart. I want you to search your soul. I want you to think through the wrongdoing that perhaps God is wanting you to confront this morning. I want you to identify it. I want you to name it. And I want you to confess it. And I just want to speak for a moment to the adulterer, to the murderer, to the addict, to the liar. the prideful, to the resentful, the hateful, 
to the greedy, to the envious that are here today. Everyone here that might be pretending and faking, trying to keep things in secret. To those of you that are convinced there's no way that God can forgive you, I want to speak to everyone that's here today. The blood of Jesus speaks a stronger word. Your sin doesn't define you. Jesus does. And so we come before God as a community of faith, confronting our own sin, discovering once again how safe we are in the arms that died for us. And we call out to you today, Father, when we ask, let us hear joy and gladness, God. With the bones you have crushed, rejoice. Father, create in us pure hearts. God, renew a steadfast spirit within us. Do not cast us from your presence or take your Holy Spirit Father, restore us to the joy of your salvation and grant us a willing spirit to sustain us now and forevermore. We love you, Father. And we pray all these things in the strong, precious blood of Jesus, our Savior. Amen and amen.